This is Rumbled Radio and it's time for another of our Q&As with our local MPs and this time it's Robbie Moore, the MP for Keithley and Ilkley, our October 2021 chat and lots been going on since the summer since we last spoke, Robbie, as well. You've been keeping busy. Uh, I have, I have and uh, well and congratulations to you as well, um, having a new member of the family. Yeah, so. I've been keeping busy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, we've got lots to talk about. We've had some questions sent in as well. So uh, we'll get straight on with it. And I, I know probably one of the first things we should talk about is something you've been quite vocal about in recent weeks is about Airedale Hospital. And I know there are two different plans in at the moment for a complete rebuild of the hospital. Is it going to happen? Well, I've been very clear um, in terms of lobbying uh, both the Health Secretary and the Chancellor about securing funds for a brand new rebuild. Um, And the reasons for that are very clear. There are structural risks associated with the Airedale Hospital. Um, We are in its 51st year. 83% of the hospital was built from aerated concrete, and it's actually the only hospital uh, in the UK where all of the walls, ceilings and floors are constructed from aerated concrete as well. And that brings structural deficiencies. The urgency is most definitely there. I have had many, many meetings with Brendan Brown, who's the chief executive at the Airedale Hospital, and likewise um, down in Westminster um, with the appropriate uh, ministers. Um, and, uh, you know, just before summer had my own uh, debate specifically about putting more pressure on the government to try and secure that funding for a brand new rebuild. Um, and we're lucky at the Airedale Hospital site because they have 43 acres, so they have quite a big site which means that we could achieve a rebuild whilst keeping the existing hospital operational. There are lots of areas of the country want investment in health services, so why why this part of the country? Why, why should the government give it to us rather than anywhere else? Well, I think we have to that's, look at... That's the question you're going to be asked in Parliament, a- isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely, and the, the reason why I have been pushing it is because all you have to do is look at the risk profile which is associated with the hospital, uh, i.e. the structural deficiencies that the Airedale is experiencing at the moment. Um, and the government have been very clear that they're going to fund 48 new hospitals. 40 have already been announced. Are they full and new hospitals or are they just kind of partial rebuilds? Because we've had a bit of a new A&E, we're getting a new ICU. Will they say, well, you've had a new hospital? Well, uh, yes, you're right. We've managed to secure that funding previously for the Airedale. Um, but what I'm wanting to achieve and the plans that I've worked working on with Brendan Brown and his team at the Airedale is very clear that we're wanting to get a new rebuild. Um, and that is what I'm lobbying to secure for the further eight that are going to be announced by the government. Well, we'll watch and see what happens. What What do you think the timescales might be for that? So expressions of interest have already gone in. Yep. Um, and, uh, and that is across the whole of the whole of England, those expressions of interest. There will be a short list that is then defined and I understand that the timings will be early spring-ish next year before there are any announcements but I you know that 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 may change but one thing I am absolutely clear is that I will continue to lobby to make sure we secure that funding because that will uh, not only um, secure that longevity of that healthcare here across the the whole of the Air Valley Wharf Valley and you know right into North Yorkshire you know the, the Airedale Hospital has a huge catchment area but also create a huge amount of jobs throughout delivering that that huge construction project. Um, something which has got a, a, a rather nearer deadline is um, the health and wellbeing hub in Keithley, which Bradford Council are going to talk about in a couple of weeks' time. I think a, a decision's due in early November. You're not happy about where they want to put that? 
I'm delighted that we have secured £3.4 million of government money, which is being injected directly into Keefley for the Health and Wellbeing Hub. We absolutely need a new wealth and, uh, health and wellbeing uh, hub in, in the centre of Keefley, and I'm determined to deliver that in the centre of Keefley. But as we all know, there are many brownfield sites in the centre of town. You don't have to wander too far to find many sites. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we absolutely have to have a proper discussion about where we locate that new health and wellbeing hub. The site that is being proposed uh, by the local authority, by Bradford Council, is just outside my office here on North Street, opposite um, the library next to the Town Hall Square. And I've been quite clear in my views that I don't think that that is the the right location for development actually I would rather see that kept as a green open space for everyone across Keefley uh, and wider area to enjoy and I think when we're wanting to talk about improving the health and well-being um, this shouldn't be an either or choice we should be able to deliver a new health and well-being hub in the centre of town and have open space which will help improve our well-being and that is the stance that I am taking on this and I urge Bradford Council to rethink their position. I mean uh, you're fairly new to the area when I was growing up in the 80s there was a building there there was a a, you know Keithley College building my granddad studied there at the technical college in the 1930s I think so there for a long time there was a building on that site it's just so happens the last few years there hasn't been and it's now got some grass on it. Yeah absolutely and it's you know it, it Obviously, that's where Keefley College stood. Um, I'm well aware of that. But we have an opportunity here to um, change what we want the town to look like. And we're talking about a very unique site here, right in the centre of Keefley. And a lot of people have strong views about what should happen on that site. Um, This isn't just any old brownfield site that we're talking about. It's right in the centre of town, right next to the town hall square. And I think that that creates an opportunity for us to actually refill how do we want the centre of Keefley to look so that we can all enjoy it? And that's why I very much think we can deliver a health and wellbeing hub right in the centre of town on another brownfield site whilst keep a green open space in the centre of town for us to enjoy. I guess the council would say that the location of it is ideal because it is right in the centre of the town, as you say, by the library, by the cinema, by the bus station. So mm. as a health centre, mm. that's an ideal place to have it. And the, the other flip side is, well, up until about three or four years ago when they turfed it, it was a brownfield site because it was a dilapidated mm. college but, but building. Absolutely. <laughs> but Stuart, you only have to go... Uh, so where, 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 where would you like way. to put it? Where's your ideal place? To put so it? There, there are multiple sites right round us. So we have a, a brownfield site that is just behind this office on Alice Street. Uh, there is another brownfield site just next to Church Green. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is another brownfield site just next to Sainsbury's at the bottom of Cavendish Street. So that's three sites clearly identified right in the centre of town. That's before we've started talking about the empty buildings in the centre of town that already exist. And they're all in close proximity to the uh, bus station, Um, to the transport networks exist, to the train station um, as well. So I think that really we do need to look at this openly rather than just quickly rushing in and developing that site that everyone um, has strong feelings about. Um, Staying on green spaces, um, there are proposals for housing developments I know in Ilkley and other parts of the uh, of your constituency, Silsden is another one recently with the Persimmon Homes proposal at the top end of Silsden. You're, you're a full-blown against development on Greenbelt land, yet at the same time the government says it needs to build 300,000 houses every year. So where are they going to put them? 
Well, you mentioned the persimmon development. Uh, that proposal is on land that's actually allocated for development, and it was by Bradford Council several several years yeah. ago. Um, I, I don't think that that is the right site for development, but we are in a position where uh, there is um, proposals that are put forward by the um, Persimmon as the housing developer. I've been incredibly frustrated in the manner in which Persimmon have gone about promoting their scheme. Uh, they've done it all online uh, and it seems very closed shop to me. Um, I've made my views very clear to um, the leadership team at Persimmon that they have to consult the wider residents of Silsden and have a public forum, which so residents can come and understand the plans. And therefore then, if uh, residents wish to object, they can formulate them based on planning policy, based on what they're, the as persimmon as the developer are actually proposing. But we have to get development in the right places and we have to get development that works and where there is a need shown for a community. Again, what we're seeing in Silsden, um, that green land that is just behind the hive, behind the community centre there, owned by Bradford Council, who are openly wanting to sell it off and build houses on it, um, which is a disgrace. You know, this is land which is one of the very few bits of green space left in the centre of Silsden. I know that there is a petition that is actively circulating around the town, and I'd encourage all residents to sign that because that land is heavily utilised by children, adults wanting to enjoy that green space, but also by the hive and the community centre. Um, and I, I think that when we are talking about housing development, we have to have a, a proper discussion about when we are wanting to deliver new housing, what is the impact going to be on local infrastructure, on our schools, healthcare, on our roads? Um, and I don't think that there's enough conversation at a local authority level that is happening on that. And back to my point that the government is telling councils around the country we need to build more homes you need to approve more development sites well what the government is saying clearly some of those are gonna have to be on greenfield sites especially as you identified with that one in Silston where it's been for many years allocated for housing but what the government is saying is that every local authority has to get their housing strategy or ie their local plan in place for the next 15 years as from 2023 so the local authority Bradford Council are now um, consult well were consulting on their draft plans and are now working on them before putting them out for consultation at some point later next year before 2023 but what I am yet to see from Bradford Council is a justification as to why that number of houses that they're proposing in each of the settlements across this constituency meet the need that has been identified from those parish areas. So, for example... You so do you think they're kind of playing politics and saying, well, the Tory government are telling us we need more houses, so let's put them all in the Tory wards? Well, I, I, what I'm not seeing is any justification that 181 new houses need to be built in Addingham, 314 ha new houses need to be built in Ilkley, 650-plus houses need to be built in Burley. Um, likewise, those uh, extra houses that need to be built in Sills and Steeton that are all, a good majority of them, on green belt land. That justification needs to come through. Also, I need to be reassured and residents need to be assured that they've had conversations with education providers, with, tr uh, with uh, the healthcare services, so that we can actually build communities up at a pace where infrastructure meets the ha new housing uh, that is going to be delivered. A good point to perhaps finish this little section. There's a question coming from Michael who says, 
Is there anything you like that Bradford Council has done or does? All I see in the paper is you complaining about Bradford Council. Wouldn't it be better to work with them rather than against them for the good of our area? Well, I have a work, very good working relationship with Bradford Council on many issues. Um, we worked together in terms of uh, submitting the Towns Fund application um, for Keefley, which we have managed to secure from the government £33.6 million, which is going to be invested into the centre of Keefley, um, which, which is good. But what I won't shy away from is holding any individual or any body or any agency to account if I feel that there are failings. And when I talk about Bradford Council, you don't have to go that far before you see many failings. And we haven't even touched children's services where the government have just had to step in and take control. We'll come on to that in a minute. Uh, Robbie Moore is with us. It's our Q&A for October 2021. We'll talk now about uh, something that's been uh, quite high profile in Howarth uh, the last few months. Um, A question from Amanda, who lives in Howarth, says, isn't it just a stay of execution for our post office? It still looks like it could close in a few months' time. What are you doing to save it for the longer term? Well, next week, I have uh, secured yet another debate in uh, the House of Commons um, specifically to discuss securing post office services uh, within communities like Howarth. Um, And I've worked incredibly hard um, to get where we are, working with um, a campaign team uh, that have been very proactive in Howarth, working with the Parish Council and our three district councillors in the Worth Valley um, to put pressure on the post office um, to make sure that the service provision at the top of Main Street Street, at the top of Howarth is maintained um, because there is a huge community at the top of Howarth um, that want to carry on using Howarth Post Office. So the new one is opening in a couple of weeks, I think, isn't it, at the bottom of town? Yes, in the co-op on Station Road. Yeah. So so we will have two post offices uh, in Howarth, um, uh, uh, which is great because it wasn't that long ago when the old post office uh, in the Miller Hay area closed um, nine years, I think, ago. Um, and my view is that absolutely we need two post office services within Howarth. You know, it's uh, the topography lends itself for having two service offerings. And that is the voice, the strong voice that I'm making uh, to the post office. Isn't it a commercial decision for the post office to make, though, if they say, well, this one's going to bring in more revenue than the other one, then isn't it that that their choice? Well, I think they have an absolute responsibility to engage with residents and understand what the community wants. Um, You know, and we all know that certain post offices receive an element of subsidy. And so be it if that's the case, because we need to ensure that residents aren't penalised for um, post office closures. And um, I think when you're talking about a settlement like Howarth, um, which um, it's, you know, you have to walk down two very steep streets to get from the top of Howarth uh, to the co-op at the bottom, that, uh, and it's not fair for those residents at the bottom of Howarth to, you know, to have to go up to the top of Main Street, that actually delivering two post office services is the right way forward. How often do you use services like post offices and banks and things like that? Because obviously banks is another thing that we've seen more closures. I think uh, there's another uh, bank in Keithley closing soon as well. That's because people are not going in them because they're doing things online. Do you personally use these kind of town centre services? Well, I I do use the post office a lot, actually, um, because inevitably when you're sending various parcels or whatever, you've you've got to go in and do that. And, and, And also I think that 
they have other services that they're delivering. Um, you know, the post office on Main Street um, is the only area that you can get cash on Main Street. Uh, and a lot of people go in to use it for that, as well as just to go and um, um, get travel money, or, or, you know, other services. It's not just buying simply about buying a stamp. And on town centres, um, we've had a bit of correspondence about Ilkley Town Centre and parking in particular, which I know has been a Bradford Council thing again for the last couple of years. Some people saying they don't go into Ilkley in the evenings now because there are parking charges. I know you live in Ilkley. Do you find it's quieter in, in town? Yeah, I I, I, th- I think that a lot of our independent um offerings um, across Ilkley and this isn't just Ilkley this is other areas as well that the same question could apply to um, are very much hindered by parking restrictions or having to pay for parking um, you know I, I've been very clear on my view about um, the the mechanisms of which the local authority have gone about implementing the parking restrictions or charging for parking we've now managed to get an extension of an hour's free car parking um, but you know the reality of it is if you are a visitor coming to somewhere like Ilkley, um, you want to experience walking around and browsing around those great independent shops that we've got. You don't know how long it's going to take to do that. You might want to nip in for a coffee or go and grab some lunch somewhere or, or as you say, come in on an evening. Um, and the way that the parking system or the charging system works is when you arrive, you've got to work out how long you are going to be staying Therefore, you know, as soon as you arrive, that barrier is created. You know, if you're going to charge for parking, and my view is we shouldn't be, uh, I think that independent businesses need the ability to get that income coming through and parking charges is a hindrance to that. But if you're going to be charging, why not charge on exit? Because then at least you, um, you're not hindered or have that barrier right at the start. And I think I'm probably right in saying that the parking charges in Ilkley are higher than they are in Keithley or Bingley or Shipley. So some residents see that as Bradford Council saying, well, you know, this is a nice place. So you're trying to make money out of us. Yeah, well, I completely agree with that resident that's saying that. Should there be a standard, you know, 30p an hour across the whole district? I I think that, well, my view is that there shouldn't be, we shouldn't create this barrier to businesses being able to thrive from getting that income stream coming in from from visitors, from, you know, from residents from outside Ilkley uh, coming into the centre of town. Um, And yes, there is a complete disparity on what the charging um, prices are uh, here uh, in Ilkley as there are to elsewhere in Bradford District and that's unfair. And other than complaining about that to Bradford Council is there anything you can do? Well <laughs> I, I can continue to put pressure on those that make the decisions. Um, you'll be well aware that as the MP I, I don't set parking charges and I don't set highway restrictions that are imposed. Um, that all sits with the local authority um, and again um, it is my job um, to um, lobby hard and make sure that that change could be achieved if they're willing to listen. One of the things that the parking charges in Ilkley has done is pushed people who need to park all day for work in the town a bit further out and the complaint again last autumn is is coming back this year that you know it's a longer walk at five o'clock at night when I finish work in the dark and I don't feel safe walking back to my car because I've got further to walk so it creates kind of safety issues as well doesn't it? It does and uh, I mean the reality is it comes down to a capacity issue Um, you know 
Ilkley is a popular place and that's great and we need to be able to attract more people to come to Ilkley to to spend their money in our you know our great independent shops you know I wouldn't be adverse to looking at where we can achieve more parking places in the centre of town you know I know that proposals have previously been looked at whether or not we could create another layer of parking above the Tesco car park you know so I think those options really do need to be explored um, and whilst we're talking about the um, the parking mechanism that Bradford Council has imposed on all of us here in Ilkley, um, we really need to look at this the way the virtual system is working. Because if you want uh, a guest as a resident to come and visit you, you've got to go onto their website, log in their regist- car registration number. Um, I know that there is difficulties with even a resident parking permit through their online registration not um, syncing to the parking office that's going around putting the tickets on everyone's cars. And and there are a lot of appeals in place at the moment. And, you know, this illustrates that the system, as it is, isn't working. And I'm guessing you've had letters about that similar scheme that's going to be introduced in Steeton close to the hospital as well, because people have been kicking off there about the same thing. And I was at Steeton Parish Council meeting only last week um, talking about that. Yeah. Um, question from Mary, which is kind of linked to that walking back to your car. As the darker nights arrive, are women safe to walk the streets of Keithley and Ilkley? And I think this is a kind of hint to the Sarah Everard case and some of the other high-profile cases we've seen of women being attacked. Mm. Um, is this a safe place to live and work and walk about? Yeah, I, I mean, um, the, we do live in a, a safe environment, but of course we, we have to be aware of the challenges that we all face. Um, and, you know, and I will absolutely do as much as I can to make sure that residents feel reassured and where they don't what what can we do to make sure that anyone that is walking home um, or you know walking to uh, going out for the night or, or whatever it is that they do feel reassured and what mechanisms can we do to put things in place so that so that everyone can go about their business go about uh, enjoying life as they should be able to do so and and I think what we've seen from um, that appalling case with with Sarah, um, but also some of the messaging that's come out from various agencies, is that there is a lot of work to do to p- try and actually create that reassurance to to everybody. Your colleague in Skipton was quite vocal uh, earlier in the week, um, calling for the resignation of the North Yorkshire Police Fire and Crime Commissioner, and he has subsequently resigned. Um, I saw some tweets suggesting, why have you not said anything about this? I'm guessing it's partly because it's not your jurisdiction being North Yorkshire. Did you have a view on whether he should go? Well, he should have gone. And I'm pleased that he has taken the decision to resign. Uh, and that was absolutely my stance on it. Um, I, I got one or two pieces of correspondence in on it. And that's how I responded to those constituents that wrote in. Um, so, yes, uh, the right decision was made. And he says he misspoke. Do you think he misspoke or do you think those were his opinions and it was hard to avoid releasing them? Well, I, I, I don't know, but <laughs> what I do know As somebody is, who speaks to the media and does these yeah, interviews what, a lot, is it easy to kind but, of say something that you don't mean? But what I do know is anyone that is in a is in a position like I am, uh, whether it's an MP, a, a councillor, parish councillor, a PCC, mayor, Every word you say is scrutinised, and quite rightly so. You know, we are all public servants and absolutely need to be held to account. Um, and we have to be conscious of not only what we say, but our actions and how we go about doing our job. On crime then, you mentioned you know the mayor. We've got a new mayor here in West Yorkshire. How do you think she's doing in her first few months and the things that she's done already? 
Uh, well, I'm not sure what she's... I haven't really seen what she's doing. So uh, I, I don't know what I can comment on other than I'm not seeing much. And in terms of crime, obviously she's appointed a, uh, a deputy mayor to look after crime. Are you happy with the appointment there? Um, so we're talking about Alison Lowe, who is the... Uh, Deputy Mayor for Policing, a non-elected position appointed to the role. Um, And um, I very much hope that um, our new West Yorkshire Mayor will be taking crime very seriously. Um, We have a lot of crime-related issues across the constituency that I represent, a lot of drug-related issues. Um, And I really do hope, and I am absolutely willing to work with our new West Yorkshire Mayor to ensure that her top priority um, is ensuring that everyone feels safe in our area and that crime um, uh, is dealt with and drug issues are dealt with because um, our new West Yorkshire Mayor is now in charge of setting the police and crime strategy and is effectively responsible for holding West Yorkshire Police to account and I very much hope to see that um, in her first term. And what's important to some parts of your constituency is different to what's important in other parts and the types of crime in Keithley perhaps are different to the types of crime in Ilkley. We've had some comments in saying Ilkley seems at the moment being a target for low-level crime if you like, you know, people trying car doors, people trying house doors and that gets people quite worried. That's not necessarily going to elicit a big police response or a lot of police on the streets patrolling at night in Ilkley but it's something that gets people worried and yeah quite right I mean uh, if if no matter what the level of crime is um, if it's um, someone trying to break in uh, through to breaking in or whether it's seeing a, a, a drug deal going on on the streets you know these are all crime related issues or if even if it's antisocial behavior that's happening down at the riverside in Ilkley you know we need to ensure that residents, visitors feel that this part of the world here in West Yorkshire is an awesome, a brilliant place to come to or live. And um, that results in more visible policing. That results in uh, making sure that we have proper contact points or poli- uh, openings of police stations that we can ensure that residents can go and report stuff rather than just simply relying on a 101 number or um, um, having sporadic policing and that's where I would like to see a police and crime plan that specifically outlines um, how we are going to achieve more visible policing in this area here that I represent Um, and also um, that's going to take a lot of resources types of things you're talking about reopening police stations that close down a few years ago well, or whatever, well, you know, that, that needs a lot of money, doesn't it? Yeah, but let, you mentioned Ilkley, but we have a police station in Ilkley uh, already. Yeah. Um, what I'm talking about is how we utilise the staffing that we have already to make sure that that becomes an open point that residents in Ilkley can wander along and have a chat to their local community police officer on. So this isn't necessarily about creating and building a brand new police station in Ilkley. We already have a building. It's just how you manage that facility. You said you want people to feel safe. Um, there are children who've been sexually abused in Keithley, and we know that, and people have been prosecuted for that Um, you're concerned about the extent that has perhaps gone unreported Um, a question came in why do we need an independent inquiry sounds like it could cost a lot of money why can't we just let the police get on and investigate things because what we have seen over the last 20 plus years is multi-agency failings 
agencies that are responsible for keeping our children safe failing our community. Let's be quite clear about that. And what we saw about eight or nine weeks ago was a very light report being released. It was only 50 odd pages. It looked at um, five children that had been sexually abused within the Bradford district over the last 20 years. Um, Two were non-recent cases, uh, three were more recent cases. But what this light report concluded was there were failings at Bradford Council, there were failings in West Yorkshire Police and failings through healthcare children's services. Now, that is not good enough for a 50-odd page report to come to those stark conclusions and then to conclude that there are still children that remain at risk and there is an unknown quantity of perpetrators out there that still remain unchallenged. When I'm getting briefed by West Yorkshire Police that there are historic grooming cases that are still working their way through the Crown Courts and there are still cases that are being explored, I don't think it's good enough just to allow West Yorkshire Police to simply crack on and not challenge where failings have taken place both at the police but at West, uh, but at uh, Bradford Council. So what I am calling for is a full Rotherham-style inquiry so that we can get to grips with the number of children that have gone through horrific experiences over uh, the last 20-plus years, understand properly where failings have taken place so that we can then move forward and absolutely get to grips with this issue. Um, And I I believe that that is absolutely the right thing that we need to do because this is the difference between standing up for a community and calling out what is right and what is absolutely wrong. Yes, that's all very valid, but that also is going to be very expensive. And is that resource not better put into the police and the children's services departments to give them more resource to find and tackle these problems? Well, that's fine, but when we're looking at Bradford Council that has had a tr- that has a children's services department that was rated inadequate by Ofsted in 2018, to the extent that now in 2021 the government have had to step in and put a commissioner in, I am reluctant about um, just as you say, simply putting money into these organisations where failings have taken place repeatedly over the last 20 years. What we need to do is step back, understand where failings have taken place so that we can properly move forward with a lessons learned uh, strategy. I also think it is very uh, unfair and ingenuous to say this is going to cost a lot of money. Um, It will take precious officer time, which is what um, those that disagree with me about calling for a Rotherham style inquiry have said. Because what does that say to the victims or the families of victims that have gone through this experience over the last 20 odd years in the Bradford district? Another report this week, it's not the full public inquiry yet, but a a kind of interim look at the early stages of the pandemic. Um, Some of your colleagues, uh, Conservatives and other parties represented on the Commons committees that put these reports out, um, said that the the, the government's failure to stop the spread of the virus early in the pandemic last year was one of the worst public health failures in this country's history. Do you agree with that? I think um, what the report has done has shone a clear light um, on some of those challenges that the government faced very early on in the pandemic. Um, And I I think we all have to be um, minded that we were in unprecedented times and that we were having to deal with a virus which was taking hold of a wider population very quickly. And no one at that time really knew how quickly it was spreading, what the ramifications would be, what the implications would be on the healthcare service. Um, So I welcome a report that scrutinises decision making uh, that has been made. I think we... um, 
anybody um, in a, a position of responsibility has to be held to account, whether it's an individual MP or a, a parish councillor. Um, but so I welcome welcome this report, and I think it will lead to more questions that need to be asked. Quite rightly, and um, we obviously have further um, further invest you know an inquiry that's going to take place, and we'll have to wait and see what that comes out with. What it finds, though, is that, you know, had the lockdown at the end of March happened a few weeks earlier, even there would be people in your constituency who perhaps wouldn't have died. Mm. And that's quite a stark message. It is a stark message. And um, it doesn't sit comfortably at all um, to, to, to know that if that is the findings of this initial report. And as I say, there will be uh, more uh, there'll be an inquir- a proper inquiry that follows. Um, but if that is what is being concluded at this early stage and we'll see what the, the full inquiry says, then co- of course that does not sit comfortably. Um, you know, that, that absolutely is not right. But all I would say at this stage is let's just see what the full inquiry says. And we shouldn't forget those tough decisions that had to be made at that time um, by the government. Do you think there's some complacency? I mean, COVID has disappeared off the news agenda a little bit because of other things, some of which we might come on to in a moment. But there are still, when you look at the numbers, 150 deaths a day, 40,000 new cases roughly each day. It's still a problem when we're heading into winter. But life seems to have gone back to normal. Are you you comfortable with how that sits, that there are people still locally in our hospitals getting COVID and dying? Yes, but what we have seen is a weakening of uh, the link between COVID uh, data, uh, positive COVID data sets and linking to hospitalisation and then uh, unfortunately uh, individuals passing away. And the reason that that has weakened is because of the success of the vaccine rollout. Um, and we shouldn't uh, lose sight of that. And again, I would use... But saying a... it's weakened is no comfort to somebody who's just lost a grandparent last week in hospital. No, but what I would say is that we, we still need to keep the message message very strong and encourage people uh, to to go and get vaccinated um, because that is the best protection. Um, and what we are seeing from some of the deaths that have unfortunately taken place is those individuals that have perhaps chosen not to be vaccinated. So I, I would really maybe use this opportunity just to keep encouraging people to go and get vaccinated because that is our best mechanism for stopping um, hospitalisation rates and, and, and unfortunately deaths but you you ask you know we're coming out of the restrictions and how's thing how are things changing i think it's absolutely right that we are now moving um to a period where things are getting back to some sort of normality um that is good for all of us who are wanting to go about our own day-to-day business but also good for our own mental health and well-being and we shouldn't lose sight of that as well and you've had some periods of isolation yourself i think since we last had you in for a q a how did you find those yeah and that was as a result of um having been pinged um through the app um and i I didn't actually test positive but you know had to self-isolate for that 10-day period um and i'm pleased though that now we are now getting back to a, a system where normality is as in the the new normality that we're all living in um is is there because it's vital for for us all, as I said, for our own health and well-being, for businesses to get back to normal, to being able to go and see relatives. Robbie Moore is with us for our Q&A in October 2021. A question from David in Addingham. Mr Moore, do you support your Tory colleagues in the Treasury taking away the £20 from people on universal credit this month? These people are already struggling. 
Yeah, well, I think the the government were very clear when they gave the £20 uplift that it was a temporary measure. Um, And throughout uh, the last few months, throughout the pandemic, tough decisions have absolutely been made. Um, But whilst they took away the uh, that that uplift and we went back to the normal level of universal credit the government had also made an announcement of 500 million pounds being made available through targeted support um, that would then help those families and individuals um, that absolutely needed uh, that uplift uh, through a more targeted measure it doesn't sit well with some people when they see government grants being announced to help private businesses you know cultural organizations and things like that who yes have been struggling but when the government is kind of bailing out a local cinema yet it's taking 20 pounds away from that family who need to feed themselves yes but what i'd I'd say though is um business support has been absolutely vital throughout this pandemic because it is businesses that are employing people that are paying people's salaries that are those individuals are then taking it back to support themselves and their families but then reinvesting that money back into the local economy um so i don't think it can be simply a case of examining you know, one case against another case, you have to look at everything in the round. And uh, that's, uh, you know, and, and that's absolutely, I believe, what the government have done there. Um, some more government announcement this week on, on money for GP practices. Alison in Silsden says, when did you last see your GP face to face? I well, I don't I, want to get into the personal <laughs> health situation of what you went to the doctors for, but... Well, know, I, I, well I mean, to answer the question directly, I... I have not needed to go and see, and that's for, uh, and therefore I am in a fortunate position. Yeah. Um, but that is not taking away from the question, and what I think you're getting at is how important is it to be able to see your GP face to face? And my absolute position on this is it is absolutely vital if a re- if any resident wants to go and see their GP and have a face to face meeting, that should absolutely be able to happen. Um, Do you think practices are using COVID as an excuse still when they could see more patients face to face? Well, I think GPs have uh, have had a tough, uh, yeah, a very I, I, very I'm tough not saying time. COVID is an excuse, but yeah, uh, and and I think that um, I, I know that the pressures that GP surgeries are facing, um, but I think that we also need to move to a position where we get back to a, a place where if you as a resident want to be able to go and speak to your GP, some residents aren't even comfortable in telling uh, maybe the receptionist that's uh, triggered with sort of trying to divert that individual to the right level of service, aren't comfortable with giving that information over the phone or at the, at the counter. So therefore, I still believe that it should be a, a right of a resident to go and see their GP and have a face-to-face meeting. But of course, other residents may be quite happy with doing something through the telephone or um, through uh, video conferencing mechanisms because um, it suits their lifestyle. But it should be for the patient to be able to have that choice. You say it's for the patient to have the choice. Back to kind of what we talked about earlier with banks, you know, because the bank's closed, I haven't got the choice of going into the branch. I have to do it online. If the GP and the management of that privately owned GP practice decides it's more cost-effective use of their time to do a video consultation... Why shouldn't the GP practice decide that rather than the the customer, if you like? Well, I think um, comparing a bank to a GP surgery is slightly um, one extreme to the other. But, they're, they're uh, but both I do private think... businesses. You know, GPs are private but... businesses, and if they decide it's more cost-effective use of their government money that they're given to see people in video consultations, mm-hmm. then isn't that their choice if it's appropriate for the for the problem? But I but I also think if it's um, if if uh, it's national 
if the national policy and national agenda is that um, a, re- a patient, a resident should have the ability to see their GP face to face, then that, that should be an availability that can happen. And th- that's the position that I think we should be moving back to. But that's not taking away from the huge challenge that I know that GP uh, practices have faced over the last 18, 19 months. Um, Alex asks, are the announcements about butchers and lorry drivers, temporary visas, an admission that Brexit just can't ever work? No. I think that this illustrates the the pressures in supply chains that we are facing, A, um, because of uh, the the challenges that we've faced on the back of the pandemic, um, as well as peaks in, in demand. Um so some lorry, issues maybe some the issues maybe problem is is caused by the pandemic is it rather than brexit well i think the supply chains have all been um completely disrupted as a result of the pandemic uh, and that that's where the issue has been because uh, certain products certain commodities are in the wrong places and uh, shipping containers etc in the wrong places uh, the question you asked was is it directly as a result singly from brexit and i would say no uh, brexit um and the challenges associated with brexit will be an element of it but there are, it's multifaceted I think, in, the, in what we're experiencing at the moment. There was a tweet from uh, a local brewery in Keithley this week as well. I don't know whether you saw that Wishbone brewery who said our CO2 prices just doubled and they tagged you and Boris Johnson in their tweet and just said, you know, if we don't get our ordered supply in early November, we may have to cancel the canning and kegging run. That could cost us a few thousand pounds in, in services and product. Um, you know, it, it's impacting on things like beer because the prices of uh, CO2 is doubling and that's a local business that employs people. It's going to miss out on orders and that impact on our local economy could be quite significant in lots of industries. Yes, yeah, and, and uh, Wishbone, who I've been to see and meet, a fantastic business. Um, the shortage of CO2 uh, will, of course, impact brewery sector but also impact many other sectors um we've we've seen that through um slaughterhouses for example um now the government i know uh, and i've had many meetings with victoria prentice who's the minister of state for agriculture um and george eustace as well um who's the secretary of state um putting pressure on those organizations that where where co2 is produced so that we can make sure that that is distributed out quicker and there was an announcement yesterday about uh, visas uh, relaxing for for that industry as well so that the production units um, can get back up into force so that should now try and alleviate that issue for wishbone and others and the other thing people are worried about is their gas prices as we head into the winter as well you know are you confident that what the government is doing on the energy sector is adequate well, I am at the moment, um, but I, it's a fast-moving environment, isn't it? Because we only saw, only yesterday, another two firms, uh, unfortunately, uh, collapse. So I think it's a case of just monitoring this. Um, and if the government need to change their position, then that that's not a weak sign. That is a sign of listening and adapting to the current moving fast situation. And we've covered a mix of kind of things going on in your constituency and national issues, but those national issues often have a significant impact locally on people's own livelihoods and businesses. And I presume from the correspondence you get, you get a lot about those national issues rather than local issues. Yeah, I get a a mix, a a, a complete mix of whether it's national related, locally related or lobbying type emails uh, or bits of correspondence. Um, well, we should encourage people to send a letter by the post, obviously, and use the post office to absolutely, get it to you. Absolutely. <laughs> but, don't, but don't be frightened in sending an email as well. <laughs> um, and just finally as well, you know, I, I know over the summer you were out and about a lot more in your summer recess and you did a night shift with the fire service and stuff like that. What were your main learnings from going out on the front line? 
Um, the ch- my main learnings were the challenges uh, that all of these organisations face. You know, my view is that if I am to be a representative for a community, my first and foremost, I love getting out understanding those challenges whether it is with Keithley Fire Brigade I had a night out uh, with the um, police on patrol as well uh, Asda at the supermarket but also interacting with uh, with business other businesses and other individuals because I've got to understand those challenges that all individuals organizations charity sector are facing to be able to do my job right and that's why I like to try and use every minute of the day to to be understanding making decisions and doing the best that I can for this constituency. Thanks for taking our listeners' questions and my questions, and we'll see you again soon.